Toledo. Imagine this. It's June 1916. You're an Ottoman soldier praying in Masjid al-Nabawi in Medina. The Sharif Hussein bin Ali, the so-called Hashemite king of the Hejaz, organizes a revolt in Mecca against your fellow Ottomans. You've heard rumors of an Arab revolt, but never did you imagine that it would ever reach this. You never believed that the Arabs would side with the central powers against the Ottoman caliph. You're led by Omar Fakhreddin Pasha, who was sent by Istanbul to protect the fortified military outpost of Medina. Hussein's sons from Mecca, Ali and Abdullah, the future king of Jordan, are joined by Faisal, the future king of Iraq. Together their forces corner Medina, Prince Abdullah from the east, Prince Ali from the south, and Faisal from the north. You hear that Faisal sabotages the railway to disrupt the supply routes that connect Medina to Damascus. You hear that they're joined by British and French soldiers, THE T.E. Lawrence. You expected a battle, perhaps, but never did you think they would organize a blockade. Food shortages and disease start to take their toll as entire neighborhoods leave the city. You're left with Fakhreddin and the other 3,000 men. Fakhreddin continues to reinforce the idea that we are here to defend the Caliphate and the Prophet's city until the very end. Even after the defeat of the Ottomans in Palestine, Mecca, and Syria. Even after the various agreements are in place for the Ottomans to surrender. Fakhreddin digs his feet in. He is ever defiant. When the civilians flee Medina, he is defiant. Even when some of your comrades, his own troops, die from hunger, he is defiant. Some of your comrades dare to defy him, but he is adamant. He will not give up to the Arabs. This is not about the war. This is not about pride. This is about the Islamic legitimacy of the Ottoman Empire and their presence in the Middle East. By now, guilt starts to seep in and you wonder if you are on the wrong side of history. For almost three years, you've been under siege, during which time the Prophet's mosque is effectively closed off to the rest of the world. But you hold your ground until January 1919, when Fakhreddin is finally persuaded to leave under British custody. He's taken to Malta as a prisoner, but not before he manages to smuggle some relics and other artifacts from the Prophet's mosque to Istanbul. You and your comrades are evacuated to Egypt and are forced to surrender. The siege of Medina would become one of the most contentious incidents of the World War I period. The tension found its root in the Arabs accusing the Ottomans of taking what was rightfully theirs. The Turks, in turn, accused the Arabs of conspiring with Western powers to dismantle the Caliphate. And Fakhreddin? Well, to some, he's seen as the one who oppressed the people of Medina by stealing their property. To modern-day Turks, he is the lionized Turkan, Turkish Muslim hero, who fought to protect Medina from the rebellious Arabs. And, in true Turkish fashion, the street where the current embassy of the United Arab Emirates is located is renamed Fakhreddin Pasha Road. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Saeed Khan, 
and this is 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series that looks into Muslims, the Middle East, and World War I. In the last episode, we examined the situation across the Muslim world and the predicament many Muslims found themselves in, fight for their homeland or for the Ottoman Empire. In this episode, we'll examine the critical factors that led to the Arab Revolt, and we'll also look into a handful of key treaties from World War I that have led to several modern realities and have shaped the modern Middle East. As the British look for allies in the Ottoman Empire to divide and fracture it, they find one in Sharif Hussein. Sharif Hussein happens to be the appointed custodian of Mecca and Medina, the governor of the Hejaz. Despite being appointed by the Ottoman Empire, Hussein does not see eye to eye with the leadership in Istanbul. Hussein, along with his son Faisal in Iraq, is convinced of the importance of unity among the Arabic-speaking regions of the Ottoman Empire. This nationalist sentiment is augmented by anti-Turkic movements in Arab provinces, aided by the public reaction to Jamal Pasha's hanging of 15 intellectuals and poets in Damascus and another 21 in Beirut. Hussein has support in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and among nationalists in Egypt. The British were very interested in compensating the French in the region, given the high national and financial costs that the French are incurring in Europe during World War I, and thus making arrangements with the French. These arrangements were also intended to avoid French expansion into the region. The British were quite worried that the French would advance on the British oil interests in Mesopotamia, and worse, onto the Suez Canal in Egypt. The British find a potential ally in Sharif Hussein with a common goal of expunging the Ottomans from the region. In a series of 10 letters between Sharif Hussein and the British High Commissioner to Egypt, Arthur Henry MacMahon, between the summer of 1915 and the spring of 1916, the British offer their support for an Arab kingdom subject to certain conditions within the region. Despite disagreements on the status of Palestine, MacMahon agrees to territorial demands made by Sharif Hussein, subject to further negotiations, and Sharif Hussein agrees to initiate the Arab revolt against the Ottomans. Another key part of this agreement was that Hussein's sons would become kings themselves. Faisal would go on to become king of Iraq, and Abdullah would go on to become king of Jordan. Just like the story we heard earlier in Medina, the Arabs, accompanied by T.E. Lawrence, conquer Damascus and create an Arab kingdom. This kingdom is initially led by Faisal until the French conquer Damascus, his reign a paltry two months. The short-lived Arab kingdom was thought to be, by many, a revival of the Umayyad dynasty of the 7th and 8th centuries. In 1915 and 1916, the Arabs hold off the Ottomans when they try to push toward the Suez Canal under the leadership of Jamal Pasha. In 1917, Baghdad revolts and is captured. Later that same year, Gaza is captured and Allenby of Britain takes over. In 1918, 
The Arab revolt forces capture Damascus, and the French fleet takes Beirut. The Ottoman armies retreat to Anatolia, and the British army occupies Istanbul, as well as most of the Arabic-speaking provinces, bringing an end to war in the Middle East, and also an end to the Ottoman Empire. Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. Now, let's talk about some of the treaties which were a result of this conflict. And the word conflict is very, very important. Just as the Hussein MacMahon correspondence comes to an end in March of 1916, seemingly with the British endorsing the establishment of an Arab kingdom, we find that in May of 1916, another secret treaty comes to light between the British, the French, and the Russians. This is the Sykes-Picot Treaty. It is an arrangement intended to cut up the Ottoman Empire with the successful outcome of World War I. But the treaty also had another purpose. It was to alleviate tensions between the British and the French, both of whom had major strategic interests in the Middle East. The Sykes-Picot Agreement is enacted in May of 1916. Its conditions and its terms are kept secret of Sharif Hussein and family. It is near impossible to believe or to conceive that the British did not have the Sykes-Picot Treaty negotiations occurring at the same time that they were negotiating with the Arab leaders. It's also important to recognize that the territory that was being contested and negotiated both with the Hussein MacMahon correspondence and the Sykes-Picot Agreement was the exact same land. Promises made to different people involving the same territory at cross-purposes with one another. The terms of the Sykes-Picot Treaty recognize France's territorial claims to Syria. After all, they had been involved in developing the infrastructure of Syria for the past 70 years, and it divided up the Middle East in some very intriguing manners. The terms of the Sykes-Picot Treaty recognized France's territorial claims to Syria, as well as the depth of their investment in the infrastructure development of Syria over the past seven decades. It sought to divide the Middle East in some rather intriguing ways. France was to get Lebanon, Syria, and the coastal region of the Mediterranean. Britain was to get Iraq, especially southern Iraq, from Baghdad all the way to the Gulf, as well as having indirect influence in an area that spanned from Gaza in the Mediterranean all the way to Kirkuk in northern Iraq. In every possible way, the Sykes-Picot Treaty is in direct contradiction to the overtures that were made in the Hussein MacMahon correspondence. Rumors of the existence of the Sykes-Picot Treaty started to leak out, and in fact it was Faisal who goes to Lord Kitchener, now in charge in Egypt, to ask him directly, is there such a thing as the Sykes-Picot Agreement? Kitchener denies its existence to Faisal's face. The full exposure of the Sykes-Picot Treaty came from a rather improbable source. In October of 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution occurs in Russia. As a result of the Tsar being deposed and Vladimir Lenin coming to power, we find that the now Soviet Union decides to withdraw from the Triple Entente, saying that this war was not something of the Russian working people's objectives. 
rifling through the documents at the Tsar's palace, Lenin comes upon a document among the archives of the Tsar, and he gives it to Pravda, the official gazette of the Soviet Communist Party, to publish it. This is the Sykes-Picot Agreement. A week later, The Guardian in Great Britain publishes a translated version of this. This, of course, becomes highly embarrassing to the Allied forces, especially given the fact that Arabs were fighting in earnest on their side with the hope and with the expectation that a land without the Ottomans would then become an Arab kingdom. There are three major documents which shape the modern Middle East. There are the Hossein MacMahon correspondence, there's the Sykes-Picot Agreement, but by far the most famous of these three documents is the Balfour Declaration. On November the 2nd, 1917, Sir Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Minister, writes a letter to Baron Walter Rothschild, a famous financier as well as prominent member of the British Zionist community, pledging the British government's support for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, provided that it did not prejudice the rights of non-Jewish citizens living in the region or Jewish communities living elsewhere in the world. The Balfour Declaration was seen as the culmination of Zionist nationalist activities and aspirations in Europe at a time of great anti-Semitism, where the Jewish community was seen increasingly as the Jewish problem. By the time World War I ends in October of 1918, there is a tremendous amount of disillusionment among the Arab leaders who spearheaded the Arab revolt with the expectation that they would receive an Arab kingdom in land that had been previously occupied by the Ottoman Empire. Faisal particularly was becoming skeptical about whether the British would follow through on the pledge that they had given his father in the Hussein MacMahon correspondence. At the same time, there was an increasing level of suspicion among the Zionist community, particularly in Britain, about whether the British would fully support the establishment of a sovereign Jewish state within Palestine. As a result, Faisal communicates with Chaim Weizmann, a prominent member of the British Zionist community, to create then an alliance in the aftermath of World War I. The Faisal-Weizmann Agreement is made at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Faisal approaches Weizmann and creates an agreement between the two parties that is committed to the most cordial goodwill and understanding of the Jewish and Arab communities of the Middle East. The agreement is intended to encourage immigration of Jews to Palestine on a large scale while also protecting the rights of the Arab peasants and tenant farmers in the region. The agreement also is intended to safeguard the free practice of religious observances. The Muslim holy places in Jerusalem, for example, as well as elsewhere in Palestine, would remain under Muslim control. 
The agreement also specifies that the Zionist movement would undertake efforts to assist the Arab residents of Palestine, and that the future Arab state that was proposed, and still aspired to by the Arabs, would develop their own natural resources and establish a growing economy. The agreement creates a commission after the Paris Peace Conference to agree upon a border between an Arab state and Palestine. Both parties would uphold the terms of the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and would at the same time allow the British to handle any disputes. Of course, the Faisal-Weizmann Agreement never had the opportunity to germinate and to take on its full application. Part of the reason for this is the fateful decision to allow the British to broker any disputes that may arise, not fully understanding that the British had their own agenda in the region. Most students of World War I recognize that the Great War, the war to end all wars, concludes at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. For the Ottoman Empire, however, it ends 12 days earlier. The Armistice of Mudros initiates the Ottoman surrender of garrisons across Anatolia. The European allies now are granted the right to occupy and control the Turkish Straits, as well as to occupy any Ottoman territory in case disorders could threaten the security of European forces. The armistice also immobilizes the Ottoman military, while the allies have the right to use any and all Ottoman roads, ports, railways, and other strategic points. On November the 12th, 1918, the very day after World War I comes to a comprehensive conclusion, French troops occupy Istanbul. The very next day, November the 13th, British troops arrive in the city as well to occupy it. Later, in 1920, at the Treaty of Sevres, the Allies are determined to punish the Ottomans as a defeated power, to grant the demands of all Ottoman subjects, and to secure European strategic objectives in Anatolia. The future of a post-World War I Middle East was certainly shaped by European powers like the British and the French. But they weren't the only ones examining what would be the fate of this strategically important region. The United States, now becoming an internationalist country, was examining the Middle East with close scrutiny. President Woodrow Wilson, representing the United States at the Paris Peace Conference, forms the King Crane Commission to examine what should be the fate of the Middle East. The commission recommends that Faisal be the head, or the emir, of a single unified Syrian state. It also recommended serious modification of, quote, the extreme Zionist program for Palestine of unlimited immigration of Jews, looking finally to make Palestine a distinctly Jewish state, end quote. Unfortunately, None of the provisions and recommendations of the King Crane Commission were taken seriously by the British and the French, and as a result of the United States not being a signatory to the Treaty of Versailles, the British and the French were allowed to enact whatever policies they deemed to be fit, appropriate, and priority for their own objectives in the region. On the heels of the Treaty of Sevres, the San Remo Conference of 1920 implement the mandate system which allows the British and the French to occupy control and shape the land of the Middle East in the aftermath of World War I. That is all for this episode of 1400 OMG. We hope you've enjoyed the episode 
And don't forget to let us know your thoughts. If you'd like to reach out to us, visit ToledoSociety.com.